This episode of the Door County Pulse podcast is brought to you in part by the Door County Community Foundation, inspiring people to give back, to sustain, and advance the community that we love. To learn more, visit givedoorcounty.org. Hello and welcome to the Door County Pulse podcast. I'm Miles Danhausen Jr. Today I'm joined by Dan Egan, environmental journalist and author of the book, The Death and Life of the Great Lakes. Dan is one of the foremost chroniclers of the Great Lakes region. He now lives in Milwaukee, where he is a journalist in residence at the Center for Water Policy at UW-Milwaukee, but he's also a longtime visitor to Door County. In 2002, he wrote an article for the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel titled, Is Door County Too Pretty for Its Own Good? Given the recent discussions about the capacity of Door County to handle the influx of visitors that are coming here, I wanted to talk to Dan about Door County's historical relationship with the visitors who flock to our peninsula. Dan also wrote a great article last week for the New York Times. It was published July 7th, entitled, A Battle Between a Great City and a Great Lake, on how the climate crisis haunts Chicago's future. It's a great article. I encourage everybody to check that out, and we will include a link in the description of this podcast for you as well. I love talking to Dan. He's a heck of a lot smarter than me, and nobody knows the issues of the Great Lakes, specifically Lake Michigan, better than he does. I hope you enjoy this discussion about tourism, water levels, the issues Chicago is grappling with. And if you're listening and the sound quality isn't perfect, Dan recorded this from his car as he was charging his phone, probably as he's between answering a number of emails and requests right now to to speak. So I really appreciate his time coming on the podcast. And so please forgive me if the audio isn't perfect, but it was really great having this conversation with Dan. I hope you like it as much as I did. And um, thanks as always for listening to the Door County Pulse podcast. Dan, thanks for joining me on the podcast today. Sure, happy to be here. The first thing I wanted to talk to you about was recently in Door County, we've had this kind of renewed discussion about our capacity here as a tourism destination and how many visitors we can bring to the county. And this has historically come up every 10 or 20 years. It kind of hits a a boiling point. And then, you know, inevitably there are recessions and kind of ebbs and flows in the marketplace and it dies down for a little bit and then it comes back up. And right now we're at one of those boiling points. But after I talked about this on the podcast a couple of weeks ago with Andrew Clyden, your dad had actually sent me an article you wrote back in 2002 for the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel about kind of the same discussion that was happening at that time. And I thought it would be great to have you talk about that a little bit of what you saw then and some of the, the historical perspective on this issue. So I don't know if you off the top of your head remember this article very vividly, but I know you you probably definitely remember the topic. Yeah, I, re- I remember it was right when I started the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, but I, I don't, I haven't read it <laughs> since I wrote it probably. <laughs> but yeah, I think what prompted that was it was the expansion of the highway or the completion of it. You know, it had been going on incrementally and I think it was just about done. And there had been, yeah, I'm kind of remembering all this right now. There had been um, a lot of people were getting sick at Nicolay Bay and they didn't know where it was coming from. And that brought up the whole issue of septic systems and that brought up the whole issue of development. So I went up there to work on that story. But before I left, the Journal Sentinel, unlike the paper that I had come from, the Salt Lake Tribune had just a wonderful uh, library and archive and staff to staff it. And so they pulled a bunch of clips on development in Door County for me. And 
one that caught my eye it was written in like 1970 or something and it opened up with how the place you know was going to hell <laughs> and I ended up using that in the story I think I used it as the lead and then kind of twisted it like you know that wasn't you know written last week that was written you know 30 years ago and here we are again and that was 2002 so yeah it's not unique to dark county i think you know resort areas everywhere have a complicated relationship with growth and success because it does threaten the very thing that draws people in in the first place yeah it's easy to forget that when you're up here and especially if you live your whole life up here like i've lived most of mine that we're not that unique in that regard. We think a lot of these problems are very particular to Door County, Wisconsin, but they're the same problems that you see in Bar Harbor, Maine and Aspen and Traverse City. All these tourism towns grapple with this changing identity and can we handle this influx? Because in covering local municipalities, I see this all the time in that you have a town that maybe has 200 year-round residents like Egg Harbor or 800 like Sister Bay has. So most of the year you're governing a small community but then in the summer, the same board members are now governing a community of 10 or 20 or 30,000 people. And, you know, it's really hard to manage that ebb and flow. And it's, it's really hard to get a context for it and wrap your arms around it. And I think that's what's happening now with our plan commissions and our, our boards. They're just not really equipped to handle this level of influx all at once from a development standpoint and, if, and an infrastructure standpoint. Yeah, it's what is, you know, the magic amount of development. I mean, you want a healthy tax base. You want people to enjoy the place, but you also, you know, want it to stay the way <laughs> the way it's been. But it's always changing. So I don't know what the answer to it is. I think it's good to have these discussions periodically so people think about it, think about what they're giving up and what they're gaining, you know, with the development. And I have to say, I hadn't been to Sister Bay in a while. and I was up there earlier this summer, and it definitely <laughs> doesn't feel like Sister Bay of the 1980s that I remember. That's not, I mean, it's not all, and I'm not being hypercritical because I think that the lake for the shorefront is spectacular. And what, a, what, you know, I think that showed a lot of foresight when they acquired that property and then what they did with it. But some of those buildings to me just seem off scale. It, it just doesn't feel like the town that it was. Yeah, I think that's certainly the case. And for better or worse, you know, you can't, you can't open up a waterfront and then not have mechanisms to pay for it, of course. And that waterfront project, all in all, probably about $20 million. And they've offset that with some grant money and things. But, you know, they, they knew they would have to drive some development. But the degree to which it went, I think, has surprised a lot of people. I had a friend return to town, a kid I graduated with, for the first time in seven or eight years. And he, he was kind of wide-eyed looking around. He goes, wow, this is, this is different. Like, this takes some getting used to. Yeah. Sounds like that was the experience you had. And there's, you know, there's there's more and better restaurants, and that's great. But there's good restaurants, you know. <laughs> and I, my, my point of reference is, is fairly shallow. It's the 1980s. I mean, I'm sure there's people who remember it from the 40s and 50s. Well, it's funny you mentioned the 1980s. So in Door County, basically all of us have, like, a formative period when we're introduced to things in the county. And we sort of see it through the lens of that was the best time and everything is like a, an alternative to that sort of. And <laughs> it's interesting because even in those times that we see as the best, there were other people then saying, well, this is overdone. It's too developed. So like in, you mentioned the 1980s, that's when I think Don Olson, I think that was his name for the journal Sentinel, or at that time, I think it was just the journal. They weren't combined yet, mm -hmm. but there was a cover story, a whole inset in the Sunday newspaper about is it time to close the door? And it was all about overdevelopment in Door County in 1986. 
on the cover of that section was a picture of Sister Bay as like an overdeveloped and too busy town then. And now most people yeah. would say, well, that was a really quaint era in Sister Bay. And uh, yeah. you even mentioned in your article how back in the 40s, people were complaining that the migrant workers for the orchards were ruining Door County, that it was getting overdeveloped. And now the migrant workers were contaminating the water by defecating in the fields. <laughs> so, I don't remember that, but yeah. <laughs> it is... It is an old story. But one of the things that also struck me in your article was the discussion of the four-lane highway. I never hear people talk about this today, mm -hmm. but I don't think we've ever thought much about like how much that impacted the type of traveler we get and also the number of travelers we get. Because you, know, you came up here always from Milwaukee, I assume, and my family would go back and forth to Chicago sometimes because all my relatives were there. Going to Chicago used mm -hmm. to be, when I was a kid, that was like a six to seven hour journey. And Milwaukee was a three and a half to four hour journey. But the improvements to the highway and the expansion of the highway has cut down a solid 30 minutes of that just in the Green Bay to, to Sturgeon Bay realm. Yeah, I actually grew up in Green Bay. So that's where we would start. And okay. I remember when I was a kid, we lived on like across from St. Norbert Abbey on Webster. So just like on the border of De Pere and Illinois. And I remember it took just to get out to the highway and it was probably my dad just noodling around, but half the trip was just getting across Green Bay because there was no easy freeway access point at that point. And then, you know, we would crawl up the two-lane highway. And um, it's nice now, now living in Milwaukee. I mean, it is nice to go 70 miles an hour comfortably between Green Bay and Sturgeon Bay. But I wonder, have they quantified at all how, how many more travelers or visitors the county gets since it went to four lane? And I don't know if that really would be an accurate assessment of the impact of the highway because you're just going to have some natural growth as well. But yeah, I think it, you know, and it's when, when you do things like that, that's the time to have a little pause and think, okay, what are the consequences of this? And what are the benefits? Yeah. And if you think of the one thing that that struck me as maybe making more feasible, and you've seen the explosion in second homeowners and weekend kind of residents up here. We've always had those, but it's blown up a lot more in recent years. And then obviously with VRBO and, and Airbnb that made it easier to do that. But for someone coming up on the weekends, if you can start going even from the Fox Valley, if that trip is a half hour shorter, then that might drive the marketplace for people to buy those second homes. For campgrounds, we've seen an explosion in the number of campground sites in the county over the last 10 to 15 years. That's another thing that people don't talk about that often when they talk about tourism increase, but we probably have several hundred more campsites. That's a lot easier to do if you're taking a half hour off the journey in each direction, as opposed yeah. to the pre-highway years. Because it used to be, if you were leaving Door County, I mean, you were stuck in a long line of cars with no opportunity to pass until you hit the four yeah. lane south of Green Bay. Yeah, I remember just when, when the old bridge in Surgeon Bay was the only way out and it being a Sunday and just <laughs> get in line. But, you know, what I wonder is with the scale of some of the houses going up, you know, there may be a whole generation coming up that doesn't want that kind of scale and opulence. And, you know, even though the highway makes everything a half hour closer, it's still a long way to go for a second home. You know, you're coming up from Milwaukee or Chicago. And if you do have a second home, do you really want, you know, the, the hassle of the maintenance of it all? Mm -hmm. I mean, because somebody built the house, you know, built a trophy home in their 50s or 60s and enjoys it thoroughly for 20 years. But then do their kids want to do that? I mean, it's it really is a commitment. If you're going to have that kind of a piece of real estate, it's going to probably preclude you from doing other things. So and that's, again, this isn't something unique to Dark County. It's a generational thing. But 
it seems to me I have kids, one just is 20 today, and, you know, I'm sure they'll become more materialistic as they get older. <laughs> but they don't really, you know, have an interest in big things. They, it's all about experiences. And yeah, I'm just ruminating. I don't really have a theory. No, that's a, that's, I think that's really interesting, too, because you wrote, you know, back in 2002, and I remember covering this, too, and talking about, like, what's happening with tourism. And the emphasis at that time was really focused on marketing to baby boomers and what they wanted and what they were in this huge bubble of boomers with all this wealth and how we were going to capture some of that. And, you know, that boomer generation that we, we have captured so well in the next five to 10 years is going to start transitioning into downsizing, into nursing homes and into unloading those second homes that they purchased. Um, so that's going to yeah. be interesting if there is a marketplace, like you said, to replace them, because now travelers are not as apt to be like the old Door County version where the family starts coming up here. And for the next 50 years, they're coming up to Door County every summer for three weeks or five times a year for a week each time or something like that. Now, like you said, your son, people are going out and collecting experiences in a lot of different places. So they might come to Door County once every three to five years, but they're not going to do it every single year. It's not like that same tradition. It's more about what yeah. other place can I see? Or yeah, every weekend of every summer, it's like, well, you know, it might be nice to go over to Sleeping Bear Dunes and, you know. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, that'll, it'll be interesting to see because those houses take a lot of maintenance and a lot of money. And, and the question is, is it worth it? Yeah, so. I have trouble taking care of my own house. <laughs> so I can't imagine having a second <laughs> one. I barely take care of my vehicles. But you know, one other thing while I have you, Dan, that I wanted to touch on is uh, some of our listeners may be aware. You had an article in New York Times come out earlier this week about the situation in Chicago in terms of it's kind of based on some some things that happened last year when water levels were extremely high. But you also touched on some of the things about it's not just about when it's really low or when it's really high. It's how quickly these things are changing now and how rapidly those water levels are going from low to high and the pressures it's putting on the infrastructure that we've built kind of to, to make it palatable to live, to have a city like Chicago on a swamp next to the lake. But it also applies to, you know, everything that's going on in Door County with like all these people spending a lot of money on shorefront revetment to protect their waterfront homes. But could you just give our listeners a little brief summary of, of the article you wrote for the New York Times about the city of Chicago for this week? Yeah, they asked me if I was interested in doing a, a piece and not anything in particular on climate change in the Great Lakes. And initially I said no, because I'm busy with something else. And then I thought about it and I thought it would be, especially in the middle of COVID, I couldn't do the traveling that I needed to do for this other project. So I thought it would be fun to focus or interesting to focus on Chicago and its unique vulnerabilities. And I started working on it. And then all of a sudden, I don't even remember when I learned about this storm in, in May of 2020 that really stressed the infrastructure down there in ways that it never has been. But that kind of crystallized it for me. And it just made me realize that these guys are really kind of on a razor's edge. They need the lake to stay where it's been for the last two or 300 years. You know, it's seasonal and annual and decadal fluctuations notwithstanding. But, you know, it's, it's everybody up there, Door County knows, you know, it's, it's always been about six feet between extreme low and extreme high. And that was the case in 2013, we were at extreme low. And then by 2020, it was record summertime high. I don't think they ever got beyond that record of 
October 86, but they got within inches and maybe even less than an inch of it. Mm-hmm. And they did it in seven years rather than in, you know, two or three decades or more. And so that was one thing, just like just the pace of the change. But then there's no reason why it has to stay within these historic brackets. And in Chicago, everything depends on, you know, as far as their sewage treatment and wastewater handling. It all, it's, it's so dependent on where Lake Michigan is. In 2013, the lake was so low, there were concerns that it wouldn't be able to send water into the river. And, and the, the river would, would tilt backwards or, you know, it's a long story that the river would flow as it normally or historically did into the lake instead of out of the lake. But they they dug that channel in 1900, so the river was reversed, so it flowed out of the lake. But that was the whole system is premised on the idea that the lake's going to stay. You know, I don't, I don't remember what the record low is, but it's, it's somewhere around 575, 76 above sea level. If it drops too far, then then that is hampered initially, and then if it goes too far, it's I don't know what you do. You get some pumps, but the problem in 2020 was was high water and you know normally when when things get really wet down in chicago their last resort is to open those gates near navy pier to just let the river and all the wastewater that it's carrying gush out into the lake because you know it's normally flowing toward the mississippi but when it gets so high all you have to do is open these gates and the river will flow backwards into the lake and take all the wastewater with it. But the lake was so high back in May 2020, they couldn't open the gates when they normally would because all that would have done was unleash the lake on the city. <laughs> and so you have these guys who are like waiting till the river would surge just above the lake and then they'd open up the gates and let a whoosh of water out and then the river would drop and the lake would start pushing back. So then they'd throttle the gates closed and then as the river swelled again, they opened the gates and you know they were literally, almost literally, bailing out the city. And and I asked these. This is the Army Corps running this lock just south of Navy Pier. I asked them what, what would have happened if they had a foot or two. I think it was two feet. I asked two feet more of water on that day. And there was also a storm surge. The wind had really pushed some water into the harbor, so it was up about a foot anyway, just from that surge. But it, mm-hmm. so if you had two feet higher and a surge of one or two feet isn't unquestionable or impossible. Um, I asked what would happen, and they said it would basically it would go over the gates, and it would just like Michigan would come unfettered into downtown. And one of the guys said it would be a problem, and another guy said all the way to the Mississippi. So <laughs> yeah, you know, water levels, and then you throw in climate change, and you know, it's just such a loaded thing. But you gotta address it, and and you know, you learn as you go. Everybody does, and things evolve, but. You know, I don't know what the bigger problem or what the more likely problem is for Chicago, low water or high water, but it's probably both at some point, you know. And 10 years ago, we were writing a lot at the Journal Sentinel about the St. Clair River and the erosion Mm -hmm. and, you know, how it had permanently lowered the levels of Michigan and Huron by 18 inches and, and maybe it was growing and people were, you know, upset about that and they wanted those 18 inches back and, you know, we'd mentioned at that time that, yeah, everybody wants that water back now, but in 1986, they, would, they wouldn't have wanted that water back when we were at a record high. And it holds true today as well. Yeah, that's really hard to comprehend. If you look at even the levels last year, if that dredging had never happened, and, and if they are going to say, like, that's that's 18 inches, which is, I think, what that, that international study eventually determined, roughly yeah. 18 inches, they can't so f- say for sure. But you imagine last year's levels, throw 18 inches of water on top of that. Like, yeah, that would have caused yeah. Think about all docks in Door County. I mean, oh, everything's underwater. Yeah. I mean, parts of the highway in Ephraim probably are underwater if that's the case. 
Yeah, and so that would be a real problem for Ephraim, but Ephraim doesn't have nine and a half million people. <laughs> That's why the scale of Chicago, and you know, people are concerned, rightly so, about sea level rise and what that's going to mean for coastal cities, but that's happening, you know, relatively slowly, not counting, you know, the storm surges that you get in in places like New York and and North Carolina and especially Miami. Mm -hmm. But um, it's in a way, it's potentially manageable. I don't think we're going to manage it the way we could or should, but you could have kind of an orderly retreat, but with the Great Lakes, you could be dealing as we were with high water one year and and then low water in five years. So what do you do? You riprap all the beaches and you armor the whole shoreline and then the water drops and you rip it all out and enjoy the beach for five years and then put it all back. And, and we'll rip and do any good if you, if you get, you know, two more feet of water from a record high. I, yeah, you can riprap all you want if the water just goes over the top of it. <laughs> yeah, and Chicago is like, that place is so plumbed and, you know, it was built on a swamp so it was already really low and then they they did a lot of digging too like in 92 they punctured essentially punctured the bottom of the chicago river putting in some pilings to protect a bridge and it flooded it flooded downtown nobody knew where the water was coming from they thought it was a, a broken main but there's this warren of tunnels that you know there was like a there was a little narrow gauge railroad that connected all the main buildings downtown i think it was used for coal delivery or something but yeah, the, there was a hole in the bottom of the river and like the merchandise, it's a merchandise mart, that huge building right mm-hmm. near the fork. And the, there were fish swimming in the basement. That's how they figured out it wasn't a water main leak. And then they saw there was a whirlpool on top of the, on the river's surface and they ended up plugging it with like mattresses. And, I mean, it's such a Chicago story. Yeah. <laughs> but when I was doing research for the story, a history from the public library said it real simply. They said that the heart of the loop is basically hollow. It's just, you know, cavernous beneath grade. And so if water gets in there, it's going to be a real problem. I mean, even last year, the last couple of years with the high water, you would see like along Lakeshore Drive, the public waterfront in Chicago, it's it's amazing. But when you have that high water, there's these great bike paths and running paths and parks there. Bikers were literally swept to their death into the lake by the water crashing over the into the bike lanes and basically onto Lakeshore Drive. And again, you add those 18 inches to that situation with those surges, and I mean, you're talking a very dangerous situation, but you're also talking like unbelievable amount of cost to go and, and fix that infrastructure. Yeah. Yeah. And this isn't fight in the sky. You know, this isn't end of the century, another generation, two generations problem. This is potentially our big problem and people don't necessarily want to acknowledge it. And, you know, I've gotten some emails from people saying, look at the historic fluctuations. We're, we're basically, you know, there's nothing that's going to jump out when you get to the right of a chart looking at like the average lake level from 1860 going forward. But what's behind that? There is something that's that's different. It's the length of time that the lake stayed below average between, I think it was 98 or 99 and 2013. It never got to its average level, which was a record. And then it rose in a record fast time to, you know, almost a record high. And then you can say, well, it's still within the bracket. It's still nature just coming along. But then when you look at what's behind all this and the precipitation has just been off the charts, as has evaporation been. So they've kind of balanced each other out. But then when, you know, the polar vortex winters arrive and you get a a real heavy ice cover, that tamps the evaporation. So then precipitation's going to dominate. And that's how we got that high, high level. So I don't know if it's been, I don't think it has been demonstrated, uh, you know, the connection or the mechanism between 
uh, climate change and, and the destabilization of the polar vortex, but a lot of people believe that they're related. And when you look at what's happened in the last five years, you realize that, like, wow, it, the lakes in the middle of the continent could be wildly affected by what's going on in the North Pole. It's something to think about, that's for sure. And it's good to know that, like, we basically, despite all of our science, we really don't know much about this. We don't know much about how to predict it because when it was the low water years, nobody was saying, I think next year it's coming back. I mean, there were people who were saying, oh, it always goes like this. We have these ebbs and flows. But, you know, the year before it started coming back in 2014, I think, like people yeah. were still expecting it to be low and people were turning their newfound shorefront lawns and manicuring them. And then it bounced back out of nowhere. And this year, after last year with those record highs, nobody last year was saying it's going to drop 15 inches next year. Nobody actually knows these things. So it's, it's not like we can really gauge it to manage it the way that we maybe have lulled ourselves into thinking we can. And when you talk about those historical averages, we're really talking about we know about a 150 year window of the lake levels. And that's really small in the grand scheme of things. And I think you mentioned it once that we might just be in an, if you look at the wider scale of a thousand years or 5,000 years, we might just be in sort of an artificially low period for the lake in this little 200 year window. And maybe it bounces dramatically back the other way 10 years from now. Maybe that begins. Yeah, 4,500 years ago, which is not long ago. I mean, people were walking around. The lake was nine feet higher. <laughs> yeah, and I think in the 1600s, it was two feet above its its record or its modern day record. They found old shorelines and they could figure out when the water was that high. And then there was a tree ring analysis that showed that the lake was about two feet higher in the 1600s. So, yeah, we got a snapshot and we've invested heavily in, as has everywhere, in the water staying, you know, where it's been. I just think it's a little more stable and predictable. It's counterintuitive, but on the ocean coast, you can see it. You can see what's happening and you can see it coming in here. We don't exactly understand what's behind it, but it, it can come a lot faster and it can go a lot faster. So I, I don't know what the answer is. I mean, but it's a very long story. And at the end, I was like, so what's my point? <laughs> <laughs> well, it is a great story, though. I mean, you, you write it so well and you kind of weave this narrative for listeners. It's not like a deep, it, I mean, there's a lot of science, there's a lot of uh, historical context to it, but it's an easy read. Um, it's written very well and the drama in it of, of these guys trying to figure out on the fly how to keep the city from getting flooded is pretty fascinating. And then there's a lot of historical yeah. context about like how Chicago was built and what it was built on. That's really cool. And then, you know, talking yeah. about those longer time frames of history, I'm sitting here in our offices in Bailey's Harbor next to the marina and I'm 200 feet away from the Ridges Sanctuary. And I got to do is look at an aerial view or take a hike through there and imagine where the lake has been at various points throughout history. And in the grand scheme of things, that's not all that long ago. So <laughs> you start to imagine yeah. Door County as being a lot more water than it is now. Yeah. And I guess my point is, it wasn't like, we must do this or we must do that. It was like, we've got to start paying attention to this because everything that we take for granted is, is kind of up in the air right now. And it's, you know, hopefully it'll somehow stay stay within its historic high and low, but there's nothing that says it has to. And like you said, our sense of history is, is pretty minuscule in terms of lake levels. Well, Dan, thanks for taking some time to join me on the podcast today. Really appreciate it. It's a great article. Um, we'll send out a link in Pulse Picks tomorrow for those who want to check that out from the New York Times. And uh, yeah, thanks again for, for keeping an eye on Door County. Yeah, thanks for taking the time to chat. 
Thank you so much for listening to the Door County Pulse podcast. If you want to support us at The Pulse, check out doorcountypulse.com slash shop, where you can get a weekly Pulse subscription, purchase some incredible Door County artwork from Pulse artist Ryan Miller, and much more. We hope you've enjoyed the Door County Pulse podcast, and we will see you next time.